from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Jay Douglas's most recent book, Everything You Need to Write Great Essays You Can Learn from Watching Movies, is on the bookshelves now. And we talked recently about how he developed the idea for the book, what he thinks helps with writing, and the unusual way that his education as a computer programmer led him to a career in writing. Stay tuned. Welcome, Jay Douglas. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, tell me about this book that you've written. Uh, I go As I'm looking through it, it has a lot of different uh, sections and contents that talk about the structure of an essay, that talk about how you can use movies to sort of push you through the process of writing an essay, from right from pre-production into production and post-production, the three components of uh, Hollywood movies. So tell me about the book. How did you get started writing it? Well, I had been doing um, workshops for high school students, high school seniors who were writing their personal statements for their college applications. And I'd been doing that for about 20 years. And I realized that to them, writing anything, not just the personal statement, was this tremendously stressful uh, procedure. And um, I started to ask myself why and experiment with different things during the, the workshops. And I found out three things. Number one, uh, I don't know how it was when, when you were in school, but when I was in school, if you did something wrong, you usually wound up having to write a hundred times, you know, I will not talk in class, I will not pass <laughs> notes in class, whatever. So we've learned that writing is a punishment. Uh, the second thing I discovered was that writing was used in school as a means of testing memory. You know, you'd get this question on an essay exam, um, what happened when George Washington crossed the Delaware to take on the Hessian troops at Trenton? So you weren't being asked to come up with anything creative. You were being asked to remember what happened. You knew all the participants. You knew where it happened. Maybe you knew when it happened. You were learning that there was a correct answer to your writing. And if you got that correct answer, you did very well. And if you didn't, you know, that's what C's, D's, and F's were for on report cards. <laughs> and the third thing is that... that the focus was on putting words on paper. So what you had was writing was turned into an event. If you had to write a 500-word paper for school and you were going to go to bed at midnight, you knew that if you wrote 100 words an hour, you could start that paper at 7 o'clock at night and you'd be in bed before The Tonight Show was half over. All right. So, so that's the, 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 the context in which people were writing, which is really an anathema to being uh, creative. So... I started to look for ways to help students around this, and I realized I couldn't do that by giving them examples from literature and from writing and other people's writing because students didn't read the way we read. They, they don't absorb the material the same way. They're looking for shorter sound bites on paper, if you will, uh, that wasn't going to work. But I did know from teaching, I teach college, uh, I teach film and, and um, television and screenwriting in college, that students knew a heck of a lot about how movies were made. And I don't just mean they could go to a movie and decide whether they liked it or not. They, they looked at bonus material on CDs. They, they read the online fan magazines. They knew the innards of movies. So I began to use the movie-making process as a metaphor for writing and began teaching writing as a process that you had to do over time and not an event that you did the night before. And from that came, uh, came this book. Okay. Tell me about the ways that you've worked with students and tested the book. What's been your procedure for working with them? I noticed, for example, you've got in the book 
a uh, after every one of your sections, you'll have a little thing, uh, lines at the bottom, and it says post a reply, which suggests to me sort of Facebook kind of ideas of, you know, here is my response to what you've just written. Is that something that grew out of working with students? Uh, yes. I mean, the, the, the whole idea behind the structure of the book was that I wanted to make the chapters appear more like blog posts than something that they'd find bound between the covers. And in keeping with that kind of conceit, I also wanted the students to have a chance to reply. Now, not everybody was going to jump online and, and talk about the book, but I wanted to give them space at the end of every chapter to sort of pretend that, hey, if I were online right now, this is what I might set my Facebook status to, or this is what I might tweet about with regard to this chapter. And um, later on in the, in the fall, I'm going to have uh, my website up for this book, and it will have space for people to take those posts and actually put them online. I think that students today want short bites of information that they can digest. They want the opportunity to pick and choose what they want to learn when they want to learn it. So rather than have a book that you had to read from front to back in order, you can really jump around in this book, read roughly 500 or 700 words on a particular topic that you're interested in, and then go someplace else. Okay. How long did it take you to write the book when you had the idea what uh, when you I'm, I'm curious because the the sections are really short and it does seem like, you know, you, you sit down, and you say, OK, I'm going to write this section and then you, you could just walk away and come back later. Did that create problems for you as you were trying to write it in terms of it, it allowed you to take longer than you might have or you did it more quickly than you thought you might have done it? You know, the standard joke is how long did it take? It took 20 years. Mm -hmm. The truth is that it did take 20 years. I mean, it, and, and it's kind of the point that I make in the book about writing being a process. If you want to talk about how long did it take me to write the actual words, I probably spent about four or five months actually writing the manuscript, spread out in roughly two, two bursts of writing, three months here, three months there. But the reason that I could do that is that when I sat down to write, I literally was hearing the words that I'd used in my workshops. And so I was more transcribing than I was um, creating. What's the most useful movie uh, or the movie that you use most frequently when you're illustrating the ideas in the book? When you say you can learn from the movies, what's the movie you go back to the most when you're trying to get people to write in this system? I think there are two. I think one of them is, is Avatar. And I have to make a disclaimer up front that as far as a story is concerned, I'm not thrilled with Avatar, but that's not going to stop me. I think that what James Cameron did was created this incredibly unique visual world. And what I try to drive home to anybody who wants to write is that writing is visual. In fact, I tell people that, that here's the secret to writing. The secret to writing is you see an image in your head and you put down on paper the words that will make someone else see that same image. Writing is no more complicated than that. Now, there's an art to picking those words, but the basic mechanism of writing is that simple. And, and so I use uh, Avatar a lot as an example because of the attention to detail and specifics that Cameron used in creating the world so that it was entirely believable. And I remind people that when they write, they have to pay attention to those kinds of specifics too. And they have to choose their words to create visual images in the minds of their readers. It's not all about dry words on text. It's about the reader actually seeing some image in his or her head. I think the second movie that I, that I use a lot is Jaws. 
And everybody talks about Jaws and how gripping it is and how terrifying it is and the shark. The truth is the shark doesn't appear, and I forget what, it's about a half hour into the movie. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not there. It's all this anticipation of building up to what you're going to see. But if you look at the film and study the first 10 minutes, there's an incredible amount of information set up in that film that makes you want to hang around. That has almost nothing to do with the shark. The shark is in there tangentially. Um, you have a big city policeman who is up against a small town mayor and they're locking heads over the issue of whether there really is a shark in the water and what it's going to do to their July 4th festival. And you can see the tension and the conflict building between these two people. And you're thinking, you know, if something doesn't happen, um, there's going to be more than, than fireworks up in the sky uh, on July 4th in this town. And that's really important to set up what you write quickly. Uh, I, I tell people that in an essay, the first paragraph is the equivalent of the first 10 minutes of a movie. If you don't hook the reader, you don't hook the viewer in the first 10 minutes, you don't hook the reader in the first paragraph, that's when the, the cell phones come out and people start texting in the movie theater and start talking because they've tuned out. Okay. Now, you've got a section in here, and I don't want to give anything away uh, from the readers of the book, but one of the titles is Why Leonardo DiCaprio Doesn't Go to the Bathroom. And this, I, I feel, has to certainly uh, approach the level of importance of, you know, the first 10 minutes of Jaws, why Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't go to the bathroom. Seems to me to be one of those questions that you must, when people just pick it up and flip through it, have to start answering at some point, and, and you may find yourself in an odd position. Is that happened to you? <laughs> now, usually I say, did I write that? Yeah. And try and change the subject. Okay. It's the same reason that Jack Bauer on the, on the TV show 24 never charged his cell phone or never had to reload his gun. One of the, the negatives of things like the web is that it's, it's possible to extract infinite amounts of information um, just by pointing and clicking. A good example is Wikipedia. If you've ever gotten wrapped up in Wikipedia where you've started to do research on one topic and then there's a highlighted word, you go, yeah, I, I want to know more about that. And you click on that. And then there's another highlighted word. And pretty soon, it's a half hour later, you're 92 levels deep. You have no idea what your original question was. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you feel, I think I've learned something, but I have no idea what it was. That carries over to a lot of students writing, where they just start putting information into the essay, uh, some of it because I think they feel that it's interesting. And some of it because they feel that maybe they'll impress somebody. It's like throwing it up against the wall and hoping that the pasta sticks. And a lot of it is irrelevant. And, and I wanted to make the point that when filmmakers work on their films, even though they may have an hour and a half or two hours to tell the story, they include only those topics that are relevant to the story. And, and if Leonardo DiCaprio going to the, to the bathroom is not relevant to the story, you don't show it. You're only going to show it if he goes into the bathroom and gets beat up or locked in a stall or, or the pipes break and it, and it ruins his, his clothing and he has to run out stark naked and everybody notices him. Otherwise, it's a non-event as far as the story is concerned. And you have to make those same decisions when you write your essays. This is great stuff. I love it. I wrote it. I know it. It doesn't belong here. It's just not relevant. And that's some of the most painful cutting is when uh, oh. other people tell you it's not relevant and you have to take out, uh, you know, murder the babies is the old phrase 
for mm-hmm. kill your children. You know, you mentioned Wikipedia uh, just a minute ago, and one of the things that I found interesting is uh, your philosophy on Wikipedia. It's more open than I think a lot of uh, teachers uh, would do. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that philosophy is and how you arrived at that philosophy. I think Wikipedia is a good starting point for doing research. I think it is a terrible academic source to cite in a paper, and I don't allow it in my classes. Uh, And the reason for that is uh, I read a a story once that a graduate student, visiting graduate student at the Los Alamos uh, National Laboratories, decided to do some research. And um, Wikipedia, when someone makes an addition or a post or an edit to a Wikipedia post, the user's IP address, the address of that, that person's computer on the internet is usually recorded along with the post. So he decided to look at these IP addresses and see who, who owned them. And he found that where a lot of companies and corporations were concerned, the edits were coming from computers owned by those corporations. In other words, there is the danger and, and in, in practicality and in fact, there is the use of Wikipedia as this giant public relations machine. You watch what people are writing about you or your company or something that you have an interest in, and you quickly make whatever adjustments you have to make to promote your side of the story. But it's invisible. We don't see it. It's not transparent. We have to do digging to find this out, as this graduate student did. And so you really don't have that trail of where the information came from that's crucial to academic writing. So I tell students, hey, use it to get started. Use it to get some ideas but then do your due diligence as a researcher. Find independent sources, find academic sources, find material that's been peer reviewed, create a trail so that if someone wants to backtrack over your research, they can do it. A lot of people will immediately dismiss Wikipedia out of hand and they they won't even suggest it as a starting place. So that's one of the things that I found interesting about that philosophy and how you arrived there. Although you do title the section as Wikipedia in the sense of, say, the Wicked Witch of the West along yes. those lines. Well, because that's because students stop. I mean, they will go to Wikipedia and it will say, uh, this is uh, how this particular philosopher's writings need to be interpreted, and they'll cite that in their paper and they'll write it down. And, and that's what I think is dangerous, and that's what I call them out for. You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with my guest, Jay Douglas, author of Everything You Need to Write Great Essays You Can Learn from Watching Movies. You can learn more about him at our website, www.writerstalk.org. Now, back to our discussion of his thoughts on being a writer and how movies can help people become better at crafting their writing. One of the other sections that I I found really interesting was called Let's Talk. It's a thing imagining yourself as a stenographer and you need to transcribe a conversation with people, with with yourself and your imaginary reader. Tell me about, uh, you said you learned it from one of your students. How does that work for you and how does that get you to internalize what you're doing? What I've learned from writing and from listening to students and, and from working with students is that communication is very much a conversation. There's that, that little chapter that you talked about in another one that maybe we can talk about later with uh, Taxi Driver and Robert De Niro. Writing is very much a conversation. You, you really have to imagine that you're speaking to a person as opposed to just throwing this stuff out there and hoping somebody picks it up. And if you do that, you, you, know, you can start to see that the other person that you're talking to isn't in the room with you. But it would be extremely helpful if he or she were. And so 
I urge students to play the role of that other person. And when they write something or when they say something, to imagine what they would do if they were the other person who had heard that for the first time and what kinds of questions they might ask or what kind of challenges they might throw at you after hearing it. And then assuming that that's you know, you, what you hear, how would you respond? You're only going to write your side of the, of the conversation, but you need to get some sense of what the reader might be thinking when he or she reads these words. And that way, the essay flows more naturally instead of being the kind of stilted form that, that a lot of students and, and adults write, which is, I thought of this, and now I'm going to go on to this next topic, and maybe the two aren't related, um, but that's okay. You had mentioned in that response that that relates to the section on De Niro, where he utters the phrase, you talking to me. That's my best De Niro impression there, by the way. I hope that really, really made it for you there. Tell me about that uh, section, because you talk about De Niro not as an actor, but as a communicator. And, and that's a different uh, take for you than an actor. It's a different meaning for you. And you re- then relate that to writing. Actors, I think, learn either, either deliberately or unconsciously that they need to communicate certain things about their character to the audience. It's not all about the words. It's about letting the audience know who the whole person is and in terms of the character they're playing. And the great actors are great communicators, and in part because they know who they're talking to. At any moment in time, they're talking, they're communicating to somebody specific. Even when an actor is called upon on a role to address the audience, let's say in a theater, and address the audience as an audience, my actor friends tell me that they'll single out somebody and and look at that person and talk to that person because the person who talks to everyone talks to no one. And the same thing is true in writing. If you try to write to everyone, you talk to or you write to no one, you communicate to nobody. And and I was making the point with De Niro that when he utters those lines, and I'm not even going to try and top your, your oh, it's, it's too incredible, really. It, it is. I, 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 I'm humbled. Uh, when when he he talked he made those those lines he's talking to his character in the mirror he's not just mouthing the words he he's literally looking at his character and addressing those lines to that character and i think it's one of the things that makes the scene so powerful and when you write you want to try and achieve that same objective you want to envision who is reading your material at that moment what does he, I'll use he because he or she becomes redundant, but it could certainly be a she. What he looks like, what he's wearing, where he's reading your book, sitting, standing, what kind of a mood is this person in? Why did this person pick up the book? What is this person looking to learn or hear? Entertainment information and fix that in your mind. And then write to that person, communicate to that person. Who do you write to? I mean, I imagine in some ways it's somebody different for every piece of writing, but is there somebody you come back to a lot and think, I'm always going to write to my aunt, Janet? I asked because I had talked to um, a guy in town named Marty Isaac who does a lot of writing, and he said he always writes a letter, and he always addresses it to the same person, his uncle. And I'm curious whether you go through a cast of characters in your head when you're writing or whether you are more attuned to, say, one person that's very interesting as to what he uses for his, his target. And it, I'm always amazed. Everybody has their own writing process. There's, there's a writing process for every person in the world. And a, a lot of writing is, is finding your writing process and making peace with it. And, and that's fascinating because I'd never heard of somebody 
describing the writing process as I write a letter. Yeah, he said, then he says he takes the top off it and that becomes the piece that he's writing. And I'm sure it works very mm-hmm. well for him. I and mean, it's great. It's a great approach. I have to try it sometime. To answer your question, no, it's, it's, it's somebody different every time. I don't really have a, a cast of characters. The, the one concession that I make is I often, when I'm struggling to get started, start as a fairy tale. I will, I will actually put the words down once upon a time. And it somehow frees me up and I start writing because fairy tales are whimsical and they're not real and there's so much fantasy to them. You can make up anything you want. And it helps to get me unstuck when I'm, when my thinking has kind of gotten channeled in the wrong direction. But for this book, I, I imagined um, that I was writing to one of the high school students that I see in my, in my workshops. I, um, I'm working on another book for uh, screenwriters. And, um, you know, I have a model of a, of a beginning uh, screenwriter. And I can see that person sitting down at the desk in front of the computer and going through these moments of agony of the different parts of the screenwriting process. And, and I just talked to that person. This is what I would say to you if I were standing over your shoulder. But you didn't, in the book, actually start once upon a time in a, a land far, far away called Hollywood. They made these things called movies. That's the top that I tear off. I wanted to finish up where I could have started this, but that would then, you know, be a different kind of writing. You have a BS and an MS degrees in electrical engineering and computer science. And then MFA. You had to go and I know, I had to tell. Oh, this is complete exposure here, you know. Then an MFA in screenwriting and a PhD in film and television cultural studies. How did you go (laughs) from the BS and MS um, in electrical engineering and computer science in, into screenwriting. That sounds almost a bipolar there. That sounds like a very big shift. How, as a writer, did you negotiate that or what led to that for you? Well, I... <laughs> oh, my. You have to be careful what you write in these things <laughs> because they will catch up with you. I think I was always a writer. When I was a computer programmer and we wrote computer code, one of the things that we had to do was add comments to the computer code. And the computer code is machine, it's instructions to the computer on what to do. And the comments are instructions to the person who is going to work on the program after you as to what you did. And, and they're written in English and, and presumably they allow somebody to pick up where you left off or fix bugs that occur in your program and so forth. And my computer programming instructors in college would always write back on my, my program, your programming is okay. But your comments are hysterical. <laughs> they loved reading my comments. They thought they were funny. They thought they were witty. They thought they were narrative. They couldn't believe that a computer programmer was writing these things. So I think I had a writing streak in me. How I was able to do these things, I, I actually attribute that entirely to my education at Columbia. One of the things that Columbia University taught and still teaches its students is uh, you learn how to learn. It's not just about reading dead white men's writings and absorbing them and being able to quote them. It's understanding how to learn. And over the years, um, I've had a pretty sordid career. Some people call it eclectic. I call it Mm -hmm. sordid. Uh, But I've been able to rely on that education to learn how to learn to do other things. And writing and computer programming have a lot of similarities. They're both actually forms of communication. You have to know your audience. One audience is a computer. One audience is a person. You have to understand your audience. You have to understand what you want your audience to do after they read what you've written and, and so forth. So it's not as big a leap as you might think. But, but that writing fire in me, plus the ability to look at a field and learn how the field works and what I need to know in order to, to do well in it, 
that's all on Columbia. Is there a chance that your next book is going to be a collection of the comments that you your your ba- your best code comments that really resonated with your instructors there? Is that on the horizon? Not a chance in hell. <laughs> okay. I didn't think so, but it was it was worth a shot there, you know, to see. <clears throat> Fortunately, those were have been lost to uh, this was this was before the days of the internet and before the days of floppy disks and everything was pretty much on punch cards and uh, computer printouts and mercifully they're gone. Okay. Well, it would be a niche market, I think, uh, and which uh, would be difficult to sell a lot of books. Jay Douglas, I thank you very much for talking to me today about your book, Everything You Need to Write Great Essays You Can Learn from Watching Movies. And uh, this is now out and people can get it all over the place, including online. Online and starting probably mid-September, they can go to pagingdrdoug.com, P-A-G-I-N-G-D-R-D-O-U-G dot com and if they have a copy of the book they'll be able to post their comments there and if they don't have a copy of the book they can read a sales pitch okay great all right well thank you very much have a great day thank you doug it's been a pleasure you've been listening to writers talk from the center for the study and teaching of writing at the ohio state university with guest jay douglas author of everything you need to write great essays you can learn from watching movies You can learn more about his books at www.writerstalk.org. You can watch select Writers Talk interviews at our website, along with links to our shows on YouTube and The Ohio Channel at www.ohiochannel.org. Or consult your local public broadcast listings for days and times of our shows. You can join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash writerstalk for upcoming interviews and conversations about writing. For signed books and interviewed DVDs of select Writers Talk guests, visit the Writers Talk section of the Ohio State University Bookstore. Join us next week for my talk with Manhattan-based psychologist Elizabeth Gorin, the author of Beyond the Reach of Ladders. Gorin has spent the 10 years since the 9-11 attacks counseling firefighters who responded to the calls of that day. Tell me about the writing of this book. How long did it take? When did you start? What prompted you to start? Well, this book actually was almost 10 years in the making, truly. Uh, my motive, I was really motivated by several things. Initially, I was just emotionally compelled to get down and print what was in this inconceivable reality I found myself in the middle of. America being brought down and 3,000 people literally disappearing in a matter of minutes. And I started really trying to record what I saw, what I heard in my own reactions, kind of keeping a psychologist's journal. I felt like I'd become a witness to history unfolding. And I felt a moral compunction, actually, for the sake of those who died and the people who went through it, because I know, as a psychologist, uh, how memory fades and distorts. So I actually wrote this as close to the events, everything that's described from 2001 all the way through to the present. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about needing to change uh, and create composite characters, um, obviously because you need to protect identities, identifications, uh, things like that for the uh, people involved. I'd like to know about that kind of writing where you created the composite characters. You go from 
maybe in a journal where you're changing the identity, but hewing fairly close to the description of the person to something like this, where you're creating more of a, a, a more difficult character to identify, but something that you felt was more accurate in terms of the felt experience? Yes. Well, I tried to, with each of the characters, to keep as accurate as possible, and I would keep notes after my interactions with them in the firehouse within days, and then following firefighters in their therapy sessions in 2005, um, I would keep detailed notes. Um, when I created the characters, um, actually the the composites, I should clarify, the composites are largely the firefighters in the firehouse, so that that particular firehouse and the individual firefighters would not be recognizable. But what I tried to do in these composites is capture the truth, things that they said that I knew were representative of so many of the firefighters. Um, the two firemen who I follow in therapy gave their permission uh, for me to use the material. They actually felt strongly they wanted to get their story out. Um, what and they read the material, they gave their permission. Anything they were uncomfortable with, I deleted. And then what I did with those men was to change any factual in information so that they would not be recognizable to anyone but themselves. Until then, this is Doug Dangler on the Ohio State University campus. Keep writing.